listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Scripture lesson for the, from this morning is uh, from Job 28, 1 through 28. So hold on to your horses here. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold to be refined. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Miners put an end to darkness and search out to the farthest bound the ore in gloom and deep darkness. They open shafts in a valley away from human habitation. They are forgotten by travelers. They sway suspended remote from people. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it, turned up as by fire. Its stones are the places of sapphires, and its dust contains gold. That path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud wild animals have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. They put their hand to the flinty rocks and overturn mountains by the roots. They cut out channels in the rocks, and their eyes see every precious thing. The sources of the rivers they probe, hidden things they bring to light. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Mortals do not know the way of it, and it's not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me. The sea says, it's not with me. It cannot be, for gold. It cannot be gotten for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as is its price. It cannot be valued by the gold of offer the precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The crystallite of Cush cannot compare with it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from, and where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard of a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way of it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the winds its weight and appointed out the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for a thunderbolt, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to humankind, truly the fear of the Lord that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, to be to God. God. And thank you, Dick, for that reading. So is anyone else kind of curious what we're doing in Job 28? Just me? Just the one giving the sermon? No. Um, <clears throat> seriously, though, I thought we finished the book of Job last week with chapter 42. We, we read the end. We talked about the end of Job. Why are we now in the middle of the book? We'll answer that in a second. We are wrapping up our series on Job today. Uh, this is the last uh, in this Job set of sermons. Um, there's so much in this book that we could explore and unpack together, um, but I really wanted to cover this last bit right from the middle um, because it is super important, for one, and it's going to help us wrap up this uh, series on Old Testament wisdom that we've been in all year. But in order to see why this is so important, we have to talk about the structure 
of Job. And I just want to acknowledge right off the bat, I know not everyone is into this Bible nerd stuff, right? Like, like where we outline the structure of a book. I can already see some of your eyes glazing over, and that's fine. That is okay. You are loved. More power to you. Um, <clears throat> but I enjoy this stuff, and this is the last time I get to preach for three months, so it's happening, okay? That's what we're doing it. We're doing it. Is that, is that all right? Are we good with that? We good? A couple no's, it's fine. I'm good with it. Uh, Two months ago, when we started the book of Job, I showed you all this image. Uh, It's sort of the the structure, a visual outline of the structure of Job. We talked about how Job is kind of a unique book in the Bible because we get this narrative intro and a narrative outro with like, what, 30-some-odd chapters of dense Hebrew poetry stuffed right in the middle. That's a little weird, Uh, Usually, books of the Bible are either poetry or narrative or something else. Job blends them, though. And this this visual outline is accurate. That is correct. It works. But you guys have no idea how deep the rabbit hole goes with this, okay? Let's get nerdy for a second. Uh, We talked about Job's friends a few weeks back how Job goes back and forth with them. One friend accuses Job, he defends himself. The next friend accuses him, he defends himself, and so on. Job has this back and forth with his friends where he responds to each one of them individually three times, three rounds of like the most insane ancient Near Eastern battle rap you could ever possibly imagine. Round one, round two, round three. It starts in chapter three, goes all the way to chapter 27. But that leaves us with the rest of this dense Hebrew poetry, chapters 29 to 41, where we find three speeches, three monologues. The first is from Job. You can go to the next slide. Perfect. This first is from Job, where he kind of gives his concluding defense and then takes his case directly to God. Then we get a speech from Elihu, another one of Job's friends who comes out of nowhere. We haven't talked about Elihu much. He's basically summarizing the closing argument of the other friends. That's kind of a way to think about him. And then the third and final monologue is from God. When God shows up, in the whirlwind to answer Job and to set his friends in their place. We following this so far? Okay. What do you notice about this structure? What stands out to you? You Guys, say louder. What? Well, oh yeah, well, there's no 28. We'll get to that. You see, Bonnie, you're you're looking ahead. Um, Yeah, there's no 28. There's no 28, which is interesting. But what else, what would we say about this structure? Symmetry, balance, yeah. Um, It almost looks like a a sideways pyramid or something. It's got this, this almost sort of mirror thing where the first half of the book is reflected and kind of inverted in the second half. You get... Uh, The first part and the last part kind of correspond, the intro and outro. Then you get the three rounds of dialogue, discussion, and the three monologues. It's an inversion. It's a reflection on itself, like a giant mirror. The fancy academic term for this way of telling a story is chiasm. Let me hear you all say chiasm. Excellent pronunciation, chiasm. The book of Job is one giant chiasm. Um where the first part corresponds to the second, 
or the last rather, the second part to the second last, and so on, all the way down the list. It's a real shame Carrie Gant couldn't be here today because she gets really excited about chiasms. Just, just ask her sometime. Just next time you see Carrie, say the word chiasm and just watch her go. It's amazing. <clears throat> we find chiasms, we find stories with this structure all over the Bible, especially the Old Testament. Um, it's in the New Testament too, though. Uh, it, it's, it's come up in Bible studies. It's come up in other sermons. Do you guys remember when we did the Gospel of Mark like a year ago? And we talked about Mark sandwiches, how, how Mark will give us the first half of a story, and then a different story, and then the end of that first story, story A, story B, story A. It's, it's a little, little chiasm. We find this everywhere. And the question I get from you all when this comes up most often is why? Why did ancient st- storytellers structure their stories this way? What's the significance? What are they trying to say? There's a few answers. One, it's pretty, right? There's sort of a beauty to it, a symmetry, as someone over here pointed out. Um, important to keep in mind the Bible is art. Job is a work of art. It is ancient literature. This is an ancient way of bringing some beauty and some symmetry to an ancient work of art. It also gives the story some structure. Um, as Westerners, we tend to structure things very systematically, right? We break it down into a list with numbers, you know, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. So boring. Ugh. Um, <clears throat> the biblical authors, though, didn't do that. They did not break their writing down into numbers. Um, all the chapter and verse numbers in your Bibles were added centuries later, mostly by Europeans, so that we could look this stuff up, right? Like, that's, that was not original. The biblical authors used a different method of structuring their stories. Maybe the most important reason, though, and Bonnie kind of caught on to this, one of the most important things a chiasm does is it points us to a hidden treasure. Usually there's something right in the middle. Whatever the main point is, whatever the storyteller really wants to say, they'll bury it right in the middle of that chiasm. I mean, it almost looks like arrows, right, pointing to something. And as, as you notice, as you no doubt have already seen, round three ends in chapter 27, and Job's speech starts in 29. Now I feel like I'm doing flashcards with my son who's in kindergarten, but what comes between 27 and 29? Good job, guys. 28, gold star, gold star. Give yourselves a round of applause. No, you don't have to do that. So whatever the storyteller of Job really wanted to say, whatever they really wanted to tell us, it's buried somewhere here in chapter 28. With that in mind, let's reread our passage. Let's reread Job 28 beginning in verse 1. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold to be refined. Pause one second, time out. Notice, there's no speaker mentioned here, right? If you've been reading along with us through Job, it's all dialogue, it's all talking. And normally you get a little like, you know, Job said this, and Bildad responded that, and then Eliphaz spoke out. This chapter has no speaker. We don't know who's saying this. Just a random poem plopped into the middle of a book full of dialogue, and it's a poem about mining (laughs) for some reason. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold to be refined. Iron is taken out of the earth, and copper is smelted from ore. 
Miners put an end to darkness and search out the farthest bound, the ore and gloom and deep darkness. They open shafts in a valley away from human habitation. They are forgotten by travelers. They sway suspended remote from people. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the places of sapphires and its dust contains gold. So we're mining now, apparently. Enough of Job and all his problems. Let's talk about geology, guys. Like, it comes completely out of nowhere. Um, The poet points us, though, to how human beings have mined the depths of the earth, uncovering all sorts of stuff. Gems, gold, metal. We explore the depths of the sea and we find pearls. Uh, We dig mine shafts and wells. We find the origin of the rivers. Uh, Through agriculture, we've uncovered the secrets of how to grow food from the soil. All this digging, all this discovery, all the valuable things we have unearthed from the ground, but wisdom remains elusive. Verse 12, but where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Mortals do not know the way to it, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. And the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be gotten for gold. Silver cannot be weighed out as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of offer, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls." We've spent a whole year talking about wisdom, looking for it, studying it, grappling with these centuries-old wisdom books of our Bibles. I've learned a lot on this journey together. I hope you have too. But I I think the biggest revelation for me, though, is how much I still don't know. Like, I thought we would master wisdom this year. I thought we would, like, be able to check that box off. Okay, wisdom covered. Got it. But it remains elusive. The more we learn, the less we know. All the way back at the beginning of this series uh, with Proverbs, we talked about wisdom as practical advice for life. Uh, It's something we gain through experience, through trial and error. What does it look like to live a good life, to be a good neighbor, to live in right relationship with God? In our very first teaching on Proverbs, I shared this quote from Ellen Davis, my favorite Old Testament scholar, who says that wisdom is instruction in the art of living well. I love that quote. I love the idea that there is an art form to life and that wisdom is learning that art form. That like speaks to me. Of course, then we read Ecclesiastes, right? The wisdom after wisdom, which is like after you've tried all that stuff in Proverbs and uh, it still blows up in your face. Here's Ecclesiastes with its message. Vanity of vanities, says the teacher. All is vanity. Everything is hevel. You guys remember what hevel means? Smoke. Smoke, mist, vapor. It's all vapor. Ecclesiastes reminds us that nothing lasts. Nothing. Each and every one of us is going to die someday. You can't escape it. 
You can't hold on to anything in this life, no matter how much of a success you are. There's wisdom in that. There's wisdom in learning to accept that. We looked at Song of Songs. Sexy wisdom, right? Had to say that one more time. Um, And we looked at the the wisdom of our relational existence. We talked about love and romance, the way our connection to God is is also connected to the way we relate to other people. Uh, We talked about what it looks like to live in right relationship with God, ourselves, other people, and the earth. That was Song of Songs. And over these last seven weeks, we've worked our way through Job. Wisdom and suffering. Is there really a just God at the heart of creation? And is it worth it to follow that God if we're still going to suffer? Wisdom has been kind of the guiding key, the base note through all of this. This way of seeing the world, this way of relating to God, the storyteller in Job wants us to know that wisdom is more valuable than any gold, any gem, any metal, any resource that we can find or possess. But it's really hard to find. It usually comes through suffering. You can spend your whole life searching for wisdom and only scratch the surface. Verse 20. Where then does wisdom come from? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all the living and concealed from the birds of the air. God understands the way to it. God knows its place. For God looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens when God gave to the wind its weight and apportioned out the waters by measure. When God made a decree for the rain and a way for the thunderbolt, then God saw it and declared it. God established it and searched it out. God said to humankind, truly, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. The fear of the Lord. That's a phrase I've heard somewhere, right? Anyone recognize that one? Amen, yes. We've heard this one before. Um, All the way back in Proverbs, Proverbs 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. As different as Ecclesiastes was from Proverbs, it ends, Ecclesiastes 12, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. That is the duty of everyone. Over and over again, these wisdom books keep pointing us to the fear of the Lord. And if you're anything like me, you bristle against that phrase a little bit. Fear of the Lord. I'm not sure if I like that. It makes me a little uncomfortable. I think there's a good reason for that, and I think there's a bad reason for that. The good reason we bristle against the fear of the Lord is because of all the damage that has been done by fear-based religion. Religion that makes insiders and outsiders, uh, good guys and bad guys. Don't associate with those people. Um, Don't ask that question. Don't read those books. That's fear-based religion. Anytime religion tries to manipulate or control, when religion cozies up with the powers that be, religion that protects abusers, or that marginalizes women or other groups of people, I don't know about you, but I've had enough of that fear-based garbage. We are right to reject it. That's the good reason that we recoil at the fear of the Lord. There's also a bad one, though. 
If, like me, you hold a place of relative privilege and power in society, um, if you're white, if you're male, if you're hetero, if you're middle class, uh, if you live in America, that's all of us, um, <clears throat> if you're a Christian living in America, you have the privilege of living in a society where you have, on a day-to-day -day basis, very little to fear, many of us. When I go in my house and I flip a switch, I have no doubt the lights are going to come on. Um, I know for a fact there will be food on my table tonight. I don't have to worry about finding clean water for my kids to drink or uh, the threat of invasion. I don't have to think about these things, but most people do. Most people alive today who have lived, most people who've lived in human history have not been white. They haven't been American. They didn't all have running water and electricity. Do you know last year, 2022, was the first year in decades where the number of people in the world without access to electricity and water went up. The number of people who don't have electricity and clean water went up last year, first time in decades. Two billion people have no clean drinking water right now. 3.6 billion, nearly half the world's population, lacks basic sanitation. We bristle against the fear of the Lord in our kind of suburban, cushy, 21st century context because a lot of us have never been afraid of anything. We don't know what it is to fear. Some of us do. Of course, there's exceptions. But many of us don't. I remember in college uh, going to the bar with friends, groups of friends, have fun, hang out. And I remember noticing how my female friends would watch each other's drinks like a hawk. If one of them got up to use the bathroom or to dance, she'd always like designate a friend. Can you watch my drink for me, please? Thank you. That's something I never had to worry about as a man. Um, I was on Facebook the other night. A friend of mine from California who happens to be black was on Facebook Live uh, in their car. They were live streaming because they were pulled over by the police. And so they went on Facebook Live just to make sure that there were people watching, just to protect their lives. And I watched the whole video. Um, I watched the whole thing. The way that that cop talked to my friend was absolutely infuriating. Not the way cops have talked to me when I've been pulled over. I worried at a couple points that my friend might die over a, a taillight that wasn't on anymore. As a white person, that's something I've never had to deal with. Um, I have friends who, before they go traveling, before they go to a restaurant, before they can visit a church, they have to do homework. They have to study and look it up and see if it's going to be a safe place for them. Am I going to be welcome there? Am I going to be able to exist there? Or am I going to be attacked as soon as I walk in the door? Some of us bristle against the fear of the Lord out of sheer entitlement because we've never been afraid of anything. When I see state legislators around the country passing laws that marginalize trans kids, I see a room full of people who have no fear of the Lord. Because if they feared God, they would respect the image of God in those trans kids that they are maligning. When I see 
a police officer, talk to a black person like they are less than human, I see an authority figure who has no fear or respect for the authority above all authorities. The God that every single one of us is going to have to answer to someday. should be noted that when the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, it's not talking about terror, right? It's talking about awe, reverence, respect, the kind of fear you have when you stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon or when you're handling plutonium. We've all been there, right? Um, <laughs> no. <clears throat> that healthy, healthy fear, respect. Um, it's like the fear that little kids have of their parents in a healthy family relationship. It's like my kids. My kids love me. It's the best. It is, like, nothing is better than the love I get every day from Miriam and Zeke. They're still at the age where they respect me. They think I know everything, which is amazing. Um, I, can do, I can do no wrong in their eyes. My, my kids trust me. They believe that as long as I'm with them, nothing can hurt them. Everything's going to be okay. They're also a little terrified of me. I've discovered um, on the rare occasion that I get upset and raise my voice, which happens on occasion, if you can believe it, um, it scares the crap out of both of them. But they have no doubt that I love them, that I would do anything for them. That's what the fear of the Lord is kind of like. Fear of the Lord doesn't mean abject terror, but I don't want to draw that line too sharply. God is the source of all life in the universe. The earth is his footstool. The heavens are God's throne. God can hold the entire universe in the palm of his hand, and yet God dwells in each and every one of us through the Holy Spirit. God is present in this room right now. That's terrifying, you guys, and beautiful. I gotta close out this series with another quote from Ellen Davis, um, my favorite Old Testament scholar. She writes this, to experience the full measure of God's power and not feel some stirring of fear would indicate a profound state of spiritual numbness. To experience the full measure of God's power and not feel some stirring of fear would indicate a profound state of spiritual numbness numbness. If you have any understanding of God's power and it doesn't make you wet your pants just a little bit, you might suffer from spiritual numbness. You might be too encumbered by the pleasures and the entitlements of our modern existence. Guys, don't succumb to spiritual numbness. Remember the fear of the Lord. Remember that sense of awe and adoration you had as a kid when the world was full of wonder and everything you needed wasn't just an Amazon search away. Recapture that sense of awe by going on a walk somewhere in nature. Go for a hike. Go to a concert or an art museum. Take it in. Recapture the wonder by sitting in a church service and just being present, taking in the stained glass windows, the ridiculously high ceilings, hearing the, the thunder of the organ as it ruptures your eardrums, Right? You might find the fear of the Lord in a quiet space of meditation or by spending some time with children and studying the way they see the world. That's wisdom. It's cliche, but it's true. Life is a journey. 
There's ups and downs, highs and lows. It's all part of this beautiful tapestry God is weaving together, and God wants us to navigate the world well because God loves us, God cares about us. God is the source of all wisdom, and God wants to share that wisdom with you. You're never gonna master it. You're never gonna plumb the depths of it. There's always gonna be more to learn, but it starts with the fear of the Lord. Let's pray. God, help us recapture the awe and the wonder of our youth. Give us a healthy fear of you, a fear that builds us up and that overcomes all the other fears of this world that tear us down. Share, share your wisdom with us, Lord, and lead us in the way of understanding so that we can follow you into the world to be good neighbors and to live in a way that glorifies you. Send your spirit upon us, God, and make us whole. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at Brockport FB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.